Well, good morning. My name is, indeed, Terry Preheim, and I am filling in this morning for Pastor Randall Anderson. He is enjoying his annual Spurgeon sabbatical out in Savannah, Georgia, and so I have the privilege of filling in for him this week and theoretically next week. This morning our text comes again from 1 Thessalonians. We are going to concentrate on verse 9 of chapter 1 this morning, uh, but a few words of introduction perhaps before we read that. Um, The broad context of where we are this morning is really important to keep in mind before we pay attention to what's going on in verses 9 and 10. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are writing to the Thessalonians, telling them how they thank God for his salvation for the Thessalonians. Paul knows that the Thessalonians are Christian because of the way the gospel came to them, the change of character it produced in them as they received the word, verse 6, so 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But there's also a change of character in the way they testified to the word, displayed in the way they testified to it, verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Now I mentioned verses 6 and 8 now because they are tremendously important. And in a little bit I'll reference them again in a slightly different context. But right now the change of character is absolutely important. So let's read to get the whole Kit and caboodle of what we're looking at this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the middle of verse 5, and we will read to the end of verse 10. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example of to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I know this is a little unorthodox, but would you stand for our prayer this morning? Our Father in heaven, we come here and we gather this morning and we ask for your favor. We ask for your deliverance. We call on you in our distress, O Lord, that you might deliver us from lying lips. And while we are standing on our feet, we should perhaps be on our knees. Lord, woe to us that we sojourn in Meshech, that place where so many of the prominent ones oppose you, where the general policy 
the policy of our culture and the policy of the place in which we live is opposition to not only your revealed truth, but your revealed way. When we speak the gospel of peace, those around us are for war. Our world tells itself lies. Our world tells us lies. They tell their neighbors lies. They tell our children lies, insisting that the deceitfulness of our own hearts is a sure guide to good and wise and righteous living. But Lord, we know it's not so. Too long have we lived among the idolatrous and the violently idolatrous, and we pray that you would deliver us, that you would deliver our children, that you would deliver our families, our friends, and our neighbors. And we come here this morning looking for truth and looking for real God-spoken wisdom and how to live and in how to think. And so we pray again, Deliver us, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And Lord, there are many connected to our congregation that we know who are trapped by this deceit. So many in situations where what the world tells them or what their own hearts tell them rules the day. And we feel the pull in our own hearts too. Deliver them. Deliver us. We pray as well for the Conrad family and all of the health issues that uh, Roy and Linda's children and grandchildren have been struggling with. And we pray that you would give the doctors wisdom as they assess the cases and that you would restore health where it has been threatened and where it has been taken. But Lord, there are so many like them in our congregation too who struggle with health and who struggle with spiritual recognition of reality, and we pray that where your gospel is, that it would also be fruitful in bringing restoration, clear health, clear eyes. We pray as well, Father, that you would be their comfort, that you would be our comfort, that you would be their healer and our healer, and that you would be their hope and ours. We ask that you would bless us with ears to hear your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Last time, when we were in First Thessalonians, several months ago now, but last time we were there, we paid attention to the fact that the assertiveness and the clarity that the Thessalonians' faith resounded forth with allowed the people who heard about them and heard about their faith to be able to articulate back the sorts of things that the Thessalonians said. In missions and in evangelism, they were clear. So what we come to this morning is what is the essential content of the faith and what sort of people does that produce? The way I've tried to summarize what's going on all the way from verse 6 to verse 10, because it's all one Uh, one section in the text, but primarily focusing on verses 9 and 10 this week and next, I've, I've tried to summarize it all this way. Imitating apostles includes promoting divine content as well as people. 
And maybe I should clarify that just a little bit because it can be vague. Imitating apostles includes promoting divine content and promoting people and promoting a way of life consistent with that content. All three of those things are being recommended to the world and particularly to those who will hear. So the main theme of the text is verse 6. You became imitators of us. That qualified them to be examples to other people, verse 7, and it enabled them to lead because of their natural evangelistic and missionary activity, verse 8. So what was the content they received? Verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word. Now in verse 8, that's given more specificity when Paul is saying, the content that went out from the Thessalonians. So verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, and that sounding forth was effective. It was not a dead word or a dead letter produced by cold and indifferent lips. It went out and it had effect because the people who spoke it cared about what they were speaking about. One of the things they try, um, if you're listening in good circles anyway, one of the things good preachers will always say is don't just preach the content of your text. Preach the spirit of the text. Communicate as best you can emotionally what is supposed to be communicated in the text. It's not merely letters that are going from one person to another. It's not merely sounds. Those sounds are to have an impact. Live what the text is saying. The same thing stands in missionary work and evangelism. The word was carried appropriately and it landed on its ears and it became effective. So effective that Paul can repeat to the Thessalonians what others heard from them. So this is like the telephone game, right? Paul delivers the message in a particular way, to the Thessalonians. They receive it with joy despite tribulation. They communicate it to another group of people, and Paul has been in contact with that other group of people in Macedonia and Achaia. And what he says is, the word that I heard from them is the same thing that I delivered to you. How satisfying is it when you play the telephone game for you to hear the same message that you first delivered? That's what's happening. Paul is not telling the Thessalonians what he told them. Interestingly enough, he's not exactly telling the Thessalonians what he heard that he delivered to the Thessalonians. What he is hearing is first something about himself. And just for simplicity's sake, we'll start this way. Paul mentions two things. First, he mentions the report of how the Thessalonians received Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That's part one to this morning. Part two is the name of their hope, which in verse 9 is referred to as God, towards the end of verse 10 referred to specifically as Jesus. That is part two to this morning. And if you notice, there are three points in the outline. The third point is much more of a summary, so if we get there, it will be short anyway. But verse 9, we in our faith are known by the messengers we receive. Verse 9, 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. The message is usually delivered by someone, and that is crucially important. Paul is in effect saying this, When I travel through Macedonia and Achaia, I have an easy road into them, because you recommended us to them before we even got there. The Thessalonians actually make Paul's job easier. And notice the language there. They report concerning us. It's not that they report to us, though that's happening too. It is a report concerning them. The apostles didn't need to work to gain a hearing among the people in Macedonia and Achaia. They had a hearing because they were already recommended as those who deliver God's own message. Paul mentions how the Thessalonians received them in chapter 2, verse 13. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but is what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so there are three things, I think, to really take away from this. First, how we act reflects the type of God we believe in, and it matters to God greatly if he is misrepresented. Many reject Christ and the Christian faith Because bad characters have claimed the name of Christian, claimed the title of Christian. Romans 2, verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it has been written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We are living unquestionably And the downhill slope of cultural Christianity, partly for this very reason. Those who claim the title of Christian often do not give a good representation of the God they claim to represent. The messenger either gives credibility to or undermines the claims of his content. In this case, the claim of the content is God himself. But on the other hand, there's great reason for hope. Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is the hope that when the world sees Christians acting as Christians, they might turn the other way. Say, wow, there might really be something to this God. Or John 13.35, But all this, by all this, People will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's not only recognition of who we are genuinely, but also who our God is by the way we act. And so you can actually be one of those people, right? You can be one of those people who has the law of God on their hearts, the gospel on their lips, and who carry forth that message as if it actually matters. That is amazing opportunity. And that is necessary 
for a world that is dead in its trespasses and sins. So number one, how we act reflects the type of God we believe in, and it greatly matters to God if he is misrepresented. Two, how we receive the messengers of God, and closer to our text, by the way, how we receive the messengers of God is a measure of how we receive God himself. So back to Galatians 4, what we had for our scripture reading this morning, beginning in verse 13. Galatians 4.13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. That's important because what Paul has been telling the Thessalonians is that they seem to have wandered from the message of the faith, the gospel, And he warns them of the futility and folly of relying on their own merits and their own way as a way for finding God's grace. He reminds them here in verse 15 of their good start. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And now he warns them that they are in danger of losing Everything that they have hoped for, and notice how it is tied to their disposition towards the apostle himself. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? How tightly the messenger of the gospel and the gospel and the God of the gospel are all tied is Very clear in Galatians 1, verse 6. One place to go, Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That verse says an awful lot, doesn't it? Turning to a different gospel is deserting him who called you. The gospel and God are inseparably tied. But then again, so is the gospel and the messenger. Matthew ten forty. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You as the messenger of the gospel, take the gospel out. How people react to you and to that message is how they react to Jesus Christ and God the Father. The Christian, the gospel, and God are all inseparably tied so that the who is distinguishable but not distinct from the what. The who and the what go together. And there's two who's, by the way. There's the who of the messenger, the who of God, and there's the what of the content of the gospel. All of those things are brought together. Which means... We have to actually believe other people if we are to trust God. That is a warning. That is a warning to anyone who thinks, you know what? I have my ideas of God and the Bible, and I don't find the rest of the church to be all that useful. God has designed it. So that our very reasoning would be tested by the body. 
Our doctrine is to be purified and refined and tested by the body of Christ. How we respond to the messengers of the gospel is how we respond to God. And if we say to the messengers of the gospel, I've got it, you don't. We say to God, I've got it, you don't. It's the same thing. The body is necessary. And not just the body generically, but the apostles in particular. So number three, who or what we recommend to others says a lot about us. And that's really the closest to the text here this morning. The recommendation of the apostles says a lot about the Thessalonians. Think broadly. We're just going to go real broad here. If you're asked who you follow, or if you asked, are asked who you spend your time following, what would you say? What would be your response? What would you recommend to someone else? Who would you recommend to someone else? Is it spiritually valuable? What does your recommendation and your interests say about you? Because other people read something about you based on those recommendations. Now let's narrow it down a little bit. Evangelicalism. One major way that we imitate the culture is that we are easily bound up by personality and personal talent over and against personally tested character and spiritual achievement. And the irony is this. The less we know someone, the more likely we are to recommend them. Isn't that strange? Of course, it's easy to do, right? The more you know someone, the more you're acquainted with their sin. Of course. (laughs) Yes. That's how it works. And no doubt, that's one reason why it's easy to recommend people we don't know. We, We aren't close to their character. But isn't that the point? Who do you recommend? What do you know of their character? Are they someone who is worthy to be recommended? It's not because of personal distance between Paul and Thessalonians that the Thessalonians recommended Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. It was because of their personal connection they recommended them. It's because they knew who they were. Verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So much of Christianity's social currency has been burned because the church has been quick to accept the apostles of industry and forget about the apostles of Christ whose godly character, rather than their slick methods or their skills or personality, was their commendation. They were recommended because they had godly character. And when we recommend others because of our distance, we go against the grain of Scripture. And perhaps an odd text to use is 1 Corinthians 1, 11 to 13. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? 
And the reason I use that text is, is twofold. First, to throw Christ in there with the rest of the lot tries to create a schism between Christ and his messengers. And you can't do that. Christ isn't divided, right? And the second thing is this. By saying, I follow this person, or I follow that person, or I follow this person, what gets lost in that division? If Paul and Apollos were both truly messengers of God, who is ultimately being rejected? The one who's being divided, Christ. Now, this is not to say that we're not going to be more naturally inclined or drawn to some people over others. I I know I certainly am. But the question is, am I overly impressed because of what someone says or how they say it? Or am I enthralled by personal charisma and get carried away because someone shares my interests rather than paying attention to the development of their character? This last week, I was asked for some book recommendations by another pastor, and I gave some really good ones, if I do say so myself. (laughs) But there's one book I didn't include, the Bible. Lots of good books to recommend. Why didn't I include the Bible? Pastor or not, it does not go without saying that he's going to spend more time in this book than in all the other ones I recommended. Isn't that what we are to do? Two hours in the Bible is far more valuable than ten hours in any other book. Not to say there's not lots of value in that ten other hours, because sometimes they can help you read this book better. Yes, there's value in the other books. But prayerful and painful studying and searching of this, what the apostles of Christ have recommended, far outweighs what anyone has to say about what the apostles of Christ recommended. It is the apostolic message we are after, not what someone says about it, primarily. Why didn't I include the Bible? Why was that not the first thing for me to recommend to someone else? When they asked me for a recommendation, I wasn't imposing anything on them. I wasn't like, yeah, should I or shouldn't? What books do you recommend? All of them but the one I should have. But here's the Christian opportunity. And there's there's two opportunities. Um, One besides clearly recommending Scripture. In this age of recommending popular figures and all of the information that we can recommend to others, we can actually recommend people of personally tested character. Verse 9, they report concerning us. Not to us, concerning us. They tell us what we were like among you. That's what the local church ought to be. Next time you're asked for a recommendation, and in my defense I was asked for a book recommendation, but... Next time I have a desire to impose my recommendations on someone else, or if I am asked, you know, I'm struggling with this issue, what would you recommend? Don't point someone to a book. Point them to a person who can say, I know this person, and I know how they have relied on God. Let them walk you through with their own experiences. And God 
is the content. So that leads to our second point this morning. The rest of verse 9. We'll start at the beginning, though. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Two facts stood, stood out to the people of Macedonia and Achaia. Who was recommended? The apostles. And the alteration of their life, the fundamental alteration of their life. In fact, it's an alteration that is absolutely fundamental to life. So it's not just the main thing that happened. It's the main thing that could have happened. They turned from God to, from idols to God. But that begs the question, what is an idol? Well, an idol is, quite honestly, not so easy to define, oddly enough. But we can talk about what idols do. And what they do is they represent competition to God's claims. By definition, an idol was meant to represent a being other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we now know is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That idol is meant to represent something other than Yahweh, who could contribute to the good or the harm of people in the world. And so the goal of the idol worshiper was to have this idol that was the embodiment of another god. The worshiper would bring his offerings and his gifts to that idol, and in return, the hope was that that idol, or the god behind the idol, we could say, would not act in a harmful way towards the worshiper, but in a positive, beneficial way to the idol. So in other words... Entrusting an idol as the embodiment of a supernatural being who could act beneficially towards the worshiper, that worshiper or that idol is competing with the claims of Yahweh who claims to be the source of all the good that especially the people of Israel had. So entrusting the idol itself, one trusts the power behind the idol, Isaiah 42, 17. This is how they phrase it. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. And the point there is this. No people is entirely stupid enough to think that the wood and the gold is actually a divine being. Perhaps an embodiment of a divine being, but there is a distinction between those two. Either way, trusting a false god is not because they did not think there was no power behind the idol. And we can even say, not because there was no power behind the idol, but because idols, without help, are impotent. They're weak. There is nothing to them. They are reliant upon someone else's power. The idol itself has no power. The or I could say this, the God behind the idol has no power. Isaiah 40, verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. 
He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. That may not seem to be talking about the God behind the idol. But listen to that in conjunction with Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. Perhaps the authority behind the idol. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. There's the contrast. The gods of the people are worthless. They're as worthless as the idol that they craft. On the other hand is the Lord who makes the heavens. There is power on the one hand, no power on the other. Cannot do anything. And what is worse, those who worship those idols are just as powerless as the idol or the false god that they worship. Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound with their throat. Here's the warning. Those who make them, or in Psalm 135, those who trust in them, become like them. So do all who trust in them. Entrusting the idol as a, an avenue of accessing the power behind that idol, the worshipers are actually trusting their own creation. How do they know that that idol is going to actually work? How do they know that that idol is the embodiment of the God that they hope to appease? They are trusting their own creation. So the idol, the image, becomes a parody of where their trust really lies. Isaiah 2 verse 8 Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So notice this. In idol worship, there is a trust of two things. The God behind the idol and the idol itself, tied pretty tightly together. But then the ingenuity of the worshiper himself. Who, if he doesn't have the skill to craft his own idol, has someone else do it, but he's trusting this. He is trusting, I know how to access a power that will actually help or harm me. The Thessalonians' original state was idolatry. And so is the original state of all of us. Ephesians 2, chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is the way Paul puts it in New Testament terms. And though he never references an idol, the reality behind idolatry is all right there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There is complete agreement between following our own sinful desires, verse 3, carrying out the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body. There's complete agreement between following our own sinful desires and following Satan, verse 2. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. The difference between saying, you follow your own thoughts and you follow Satan, is the difference of perspective, not a difference of reality. From one perspective, we are all captivated by a spiritual reality, spiritual power. We are children of the light, or we are children of the darkness. From another perspective, we are all directly guided by someone. The Holy Spirit of Christ, or ourselves. In Ephesians 2, to walk in trespasses and sins is to walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And so if someone objects that they don't believe in God, they don't believe in Satan, but they're their own guides, we can say, yeah, I, I actually agree with you. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. But the point is this, following their own sinful desires is not different from what happens in Ephesians 2, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The power that lay behind the idols, what was that? Was that a godly power? No, satanic power. What lies behind, what's the spiritual power that lies behind our culture's delusions? Is that any different to power? Was not the ingenuity of the idol craft and theology that it put power in the hands of the one who formed the idol? What is the brilliance of our cultural ideology? By and large, you are your own guide. You make yourself. It's the exact same thing. The difference is, we think we're so much advanced because we don't actually have a little gold overlaid stone figure. That's the only difference. That figurine isn't there. Everything else, exactly the same. And what Paul is telling what people heard about the Thessalonians is that you turn from that way of thinking to the living and true God. Which is where we go. And turning from idols to God, everything fundamental about the Thessalonians changed. Who they hoped in or who they relied upon, the living God. Idols are dead, non-gods, 
the God of Jesus Christ, can hope in him. He's living. For great is the Lord. This is back to Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Or Jonah 2, verse 8. For those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. There is nothing in an idol. There is nothing in cultural ideology. There is nothing there. It's impotent. It's weak. It's reliant upon human hands to make it, to uphold it, to promote it. Or the living God. And notice that people who hope in anything but the living God are noticeably short on hope. Now, hope is going to be a major theme of next week. I had to mention it this week, but we're not going to spend any more time on it. But here's the second thing. Who they relied upon as no longer lifeless idols who cannot speak, but upon one who can speak. Habakkuk 2, verses 18 to 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, shaped a metal image? A teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he has made a speechless idol. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Idols can give no assurance to their followers. Ideologies can give no assurance to their followers. They are teachers of lies. But there is a living and true God. And because Jesus is living, and because he speaks, we can know. Why did God create the world? What are, what's the purpose behind everything going on? Why is human history what it is? How did God create the world to function? Why, why does the world work the way it works? How are we to live with one another? Where is blessing? All of those things you can know. I had a recent conversation uh, with, a, with a guy who, ironically enough, is a chaplain. But his claim is this. No one can know what God has actually said. It's just arrogant to claim to know what God has actually said. Who told him so? Whose authority is he trusting when he says that? His own? Or someone else's. He would claim he is trusting people with more experience and more expertise. So he believes what he believes because he's talked to this expert, he's listened to this expert, he's read this expert. All of these people know what's going on. You can't claim to know more than they know. You haven't studied what they've studied. Perhaps not. But what's more arrogant to say, I trust these people or I trust the God of Scripture, the living and true God of Scripture? Which is more arrogant? Which is idolatry? Paul says you turned 
from idols to serve and worship the true and the living God. And that changes the fundamental disposition toward life. Number three, blessedness and joy accompany our reception of divine messengers and turning toward God. Now, I will confess, that's not actually part of verse 9 or 10, but it's the context of verses 9 and 10. So what we have here is the same sort of thought as what comes to us in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessedness and joy. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That law is preserved in Scripture. But often, and even primarily, it's communicated through messengers, whose aim, by the way, if they're following Paul, is the happiness of those who hear him, Second Corinthians one twenty four. But let's just end this way. Who do you give a way into for the gospel? Who, who are those that you receive? Now, we, we receive on a sliding scale, right? I hope the apostles themselves are the, the first we receive. But there are a lot of people that you know personally, or could know personally, who can give clarity into what those apostles have said, And you know them by their fruit. Look at their way of life. And the better you know someone, the better you are acquainted with their sin. But the danger is that if you know someone and you know their character, your enthusiasm for that person isn't going to wane. You won't be scandalized when you recognize some sin in their life. How many people have been scandalized by popular figures who all of a sudden seem to have some sin? We have opportunity in the local church. And so, who do we recommend and who is it that we trust in and rely on? Another way to ask it is, in difficult times, what do you think is going to give you blessedness? Where is your happiness going to be found? Who is going to be the one that brings you peace? The key to the idol was not the figurine itself. But the key to worshiping God is trusting the messengers of God and all they've said about him and turning to the true and living God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you that you have this message preserved for us. That you have given us a fellowship of believers whose character is tested and tried. Lord, we pray, as we prayed this morning, that you would deliver us from deceitful lips and a lying tongue. Lord, we are aware of the deceitfulness of our own heart. We pray that you would not allow us to be swallowed by that deception that lies within us, nor by the deception that surrounds us. But Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We come to you as the only true and living 
God, worthy of all our worship and worthy of all our trust. Amen.